The Gospel reading from Luke 14, 15 through 24. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent a servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. And another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Megan, if your current job doesn't work out, I think work in voiceover or radio or something like that, you just have it. So I love when you uh, come up here and read. This, um, this passage, interestingly enough, is the one that often I think about when it's 10.02 and nobody's here. You know, go out into the streets, compel someone to come, bring them in and fill it up. You think that would work as a growth strategy? Been thinking about that more and more. Um, we are a little bit <clears throat> pressed for time, or now I'm pressed for time, I should say, so, uh, which never happens, ever, at InTown. Um, so I'm going to talk really fast and just get into this. So let me pray um, really quickly as we do. <clears throat> Father, would you speak to us? Would you let us see ourselves in this passage um, in the way that we should? Would you help us to unearth and discover all of the ways that we are tied to things that are keeping us unhealthy? that we are keeping secrets that make us sick. Father, I pray that you would rescue us from those things, that we would identify them and deal with them ruthlessly, these contrary loves that we pursue. Father, I pray that you would help us to untangle the mess of our lives, uh, and if our lives are going well, that we would see that deep down there are some things that maybe maybe aren't operating in the way that they should. Father, let us give ourselves over to you and to follow the truth wherever it leads. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1990, a bride called a very fancy hotel in Boston. She was intent on setting up the most lavish wedding reception that she could imagine. Everything was going to be exquisite. There were going to be tuxedo-clad, white-gloved waiters waiting on the party. And she had $25,000 to spend, which in 1990 was a lot of money, almost double that. I checked it on the inflation calendar this morning. The only problem was that after all this planning, right before the event, the groom got cold feet, and he backed out. So the bride called the wedding, or called the hotel, 
And because it was so close to the date, they said, I'm sorry, we can't give you the money back. We've already booked this. We've invested all this money and this food, and we can't just, we can't absorb that cost. So the bride no longer had a wedding to attend, but she had a party to attend. But it seemed a little awkward just to maintain the guest list that was planning on coming to this wedding. And so she decided to start from scratch and invite a bunch of people that she had never met before. And so she walked around Boston, around uh, the general area of the hotel, which was downtown, and she passed out invitations at homeless shelters and assisted living homes and soup kitchens until she didn't have any more room. And so dozens and dozens of people who could never afford a meal like this, could never imagine being waited on by a tuxedo-wearing waiter, and if they came into the hotel on their own, probably would be asked to leave. They were invited to come to this lavish affair. And the only thing that the Boston Globe that ran this story in 1990 pointed out is that she did change the menu, and she added boneless, or what she said, spineless chicken, in honor of the groom. So the Boston Globe ran this story. It was such an unusual event. They interviewed her and were like, why did you do this? What's your motivation? What's your purpose? And she said that 10 years earlier, she had in fact been homeless. She was on the street. Jesus has been invited to a dinner party at a very respectable, very religious home. It's the home of a Pharisee. And it's weird that he gets invited because, as we know from our previous time in the, in the parables, that they don't really like him. <laughs> so why are they inviting him to this dinner? Well, it becomes apparent as you read that it's actually a test. It's a setup. And he's been invited to this place where they find this very sick guy, and it seems that they just sort of prop him up in the doorway because he would never be invited otherwise. And so Jesus, in coming to this party, encounters this man, and it's to see what will Jesus do. Well, he heals him. And the problem with that is that it's the Sabbath, and you're not supposed to help people in that way on the Sabbath, which seems like a very strange rule for a religion to have. Help people on six days, but not on the seventh. And Jesus must agree that that's a pretty strange rule because he heals him. And then he raises the ante and he tells a parable that criticizes them for how they choose seats. And he says to the host, I see a bunch of respectable, proper, religious people here, but where are the poor? Where are the crippled? Where are the lame? And where are the blind? And it sort of just sucks the air out of the room. It's not a party anymore. It's the record scratch moment, and everyone stops what they're doing and looks at this person who is basically calling out the host, which is what you're not supposed to do. And there's this awkward silence that settles in, and someone just, to break the awkward silence, yells out, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. It's all quite bizarre, if you think about it. But Jesus isn't done. He tells him a second parable, which Megan read. And he says a respectable person 
like this host, throws a party, and he invites other respectable people to come, but they all make excuses. And they're perfectly fine excuses. They're things that would have mattered and have been important in that day. But here's the thing. If God shows up and you say, well, I've got to check my livestock. I'll be back in a moment. Something's wrong. You haven't figured out that this is God showing up. And that's actually, in fact, the case. It's one thing, you know, to skip your, your neighbor's third Little League game of a Saturday because you have a work event. But there's some events that you don't miss. You don't miss your parents' 50th wedding anniversary. You don't miss your daughter's graduation from college. You don't miss your son's wedding. doesn't matter what else you had planned on your calendar, you show up. Well, the Bible claims that in Jesus, God showed up, that He was present, that He walked the earth. And in Him, the story of the whole world is recast and recapitulated, and that He is inviting the world to an eternal feast. But the people that should be most primed for this event, most ready for it, most willing to say, all right, let's do this, they say, let me check my calendar, and I'll get back with you, Jesus. Now, even if we've had a moment like that where we felt like God has shown up in our lives, we've had what Christianity talks about, this conversion moment where our path is going one way and it's now headed in the other direction because we've met God. He showed up in our lives. Even if that's true, and that has happened in your life, our everyday life sort of drowns out our awareness of it, and the practice of it is very difficult as we go about our daily routine. we got to make money. we got to buy food. we got to eat. we got to sleep. we got to have meetings. And how do we practice spirituality in times like that? But on another level, and this is where we have to wrestle with our own calendar, our own schedule, and our own to-do list, because these so-called mundane tasks are really not mundane at all. They are freighted with meaning. They represent the way that we look at life and what we want out of it. Our calendar, our to-do list, how we spend our free time, our routines embody what we believe about ultimate reality. And so they're not insignificant events as we would consider them. They're very significant. They're freighted with meaning. And often we don't stop long enough to ask, is there an order? Is there a purpose? Is there a unifying theme to all my scurrying around? Is there a reason that I get up in the morning and do what I do. And that's, as an aside, part of why we go through the Christian calendar and why we have seasons like Lent so we can practice that time of silence and reflection and asking God to show up in a different way, in a different context. But what's the meaning of all of our scurrying around? Sometimes it's just pursuit. It's just we got to keep moving. It's like the joker in the dark night. 
I'm just a dog chasing a car. I'm not, I don't know what I'm going to do if I actually get it. We're pursuing something, and if we got it, we wouldn't know what to do. Would we stop? Would we be happy? Or would we just keep going? And likely, the likely reality is that we will just keep going, keep moving, keep scurrying until we bottom out in a big way. Or Jesus finds a way to come into our house and to say, are you happy? Is this what you want out of life? Isn't there something more that you could be living for? This all looks quite respectable and tidy. But where are the poor people? And where are the crippled? And where are the lame? And revisit the language from Richard's sermon. Are you sure that your life is built on something that's stable and lasting? Maybe that's what's happening with you right now. Maybe that's why you're here. You weren't expecting that, but now Jesus is kind of leaning into your life in a way that you didn't expect. And you're asking, is there something more to life? I just keep moving. Should I stop and ask why? Maybe you're at a place here where you're asking the big questions of life and you thought, oh, well, maybe the church has something to say. And I would submit to you that Jesus is saying to you and to me, look over here. Have you considered this? Or have you rejected it in a way that he would recognize and say, no, you get it. You're rejecting it for the right reasons. What if there is a story of the world that he's telling that is hard or is easy to miss, but is so spacious and so enfolding and so sturdy that it actually feels like a party when you come in, that you feel so liberated, not all at once, but you're moving in this space of liberation and you're seeing how life could work for the first time, that you're willing to throw a party and it feels like God has really stepped into your life. Well, how would you know? How would you say, this is it, I got it, I now understand How would you know if you find it? Well, Jesus seems to be saying in some way, in a real way, and in some ways metaphorical, that you'll know it because the poor and the lame and the crippled and the blind and the sinners and the tax collectors will be there because God shows up where they are. That's where He lives. And there's that theme again that we've been considering as we've looked at the parables, that list of people that seem so predisposed to get Jesus' message, but it's so counterintuitive, He has to keep telling us over and over, these are the people that get it. These are the people that see. It's always the down and outcast. And why is this? Well, one of the reasons is that they've seen the lie of conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom has not worked for them. The lie that you can control life with enough effort or with enough money, it's been totally dismantled for them. There is room in Jesus' proposal because they are lost by the world's standards. 
They're not scurrying around doing what everyone else does and expecting different results. Their life is upside down, and so they need someone to come in. They need a third party to speak into their lives. They're lost. But what Jesus is telling us is that religious people are generally the most unlost people around. And we should perk up if, you've, if I've lost you because most everyone in this room, if you're here in any regular fashion, you're a religious person. You've bought into this story. And Jesus is saying, ironically, that by being here, you may have put your souls at jeopardy which is a strange thing for a pastor to say to the congregation that actually shows up. But this is one of the most dangerous places to be because of how we do religion. And for the rest of you, you're probably just as religious just in a secular way. You have routines that embody what you believe about ultimate reality, and you might need to critique those things as well. But the people that Jesus intentionally sought time with and hung out with, that we read stories about now, are the people that don't get invited to the Pharisees' home. They don't get invited to most respectable, tidy, clean churches because they don't fit the narrative. They don't have a safe seat there. In that culture, you were invited to the table, to the feast, if you had the social cred to reciprocate. If you somehow could lift that person's standing in the community by your attendance, then you got to come, and then they were, you were then in debt to them to invite them to your party, and that's how it operated, and you could walk through the streets and see these parties. You could understand the class system that developed around that. So the tables that you were invited to said something very significant about you. Now, when I was a sophomore in high school, I hadn't fully found um, my crowd. I had friends, but they didn't fit my idea of social cred. I didn't like what they said about me. Isn't that awful? I mean, just thinking about it, it's so cruel, though so typical. But there was a group that I knew could reciprocate, that I knew did have the social cred, And at my high school, it was this very large campus and had all these beautiful live oaks around it, and it was on the Gulf Coast, so it was always hot, so we ate outside almost every day of the year. And there was this group that ate under the largest live oak tree on the campus. And these were the cheerleaders and the star athletes and the rich kids. And I wanted, I needed entrance to that group. Sounds like a setup to a John Hughes film, doesn't it? kind of sad. I knew a few of them, but I didn't really belong. But I just decided one day that my need for social standing was greater than my fear. So I simply took my lunch out to that live oak tree, and I walked up to one of them that I knew, and I just stayed for the rest of the year and acted like I belonged. And that became my tribe for my junior and our junior and senior year until graduation. Now, on one hand, I'm kind of proud of my skinny little 16-year-old self for having the moxie to just elbow, elbow my way into this very sort of closed group. 
But it's also really sad to imagine that that was the level that I lived at. That was so important to me, that I desperately needed those other people, also skinny little know-nothing high schoolers. I needed their approval. I needed to belong. If I could sit at their table, I knew that I was somebody. What's going on at this religious party is that for all their religious achievements and standing in the community and all of their moral performance, these guys haven't matured past high school. They're still doing the very same things that I was doing. Their life still revolves around sitting with the cool kids. Now, I talk about that as if it's in the past, but I can live that way now. I can approach life as a problem to solve. I can elbow my way into the right groups. I see a problem, and I fix it. And I can very easily get into that space where I'm measuring myself by the people that I'm around, by the books I'm reading, by external factors, and say, yeah, I'm something, because look at that. I got this. I know the answer. I can handle life. Leveraging whatever assets I think I have at that moment to control life and to manage people's opinions. And when I say people's, I mean yours, (laughs) frankly. Managing people's opinions. And oftentimes it works because you can get good at almost anything, but you can't be good at everything all the time, right? I think we know that. And that's when the wheels come off. And they have in my life in a big way. And I try not to let you see all of it. I hope you see some of it, like the stories I'm telling you now. Maybe I could be a little bit more specific, but the wheels have come off. If you want details, you can ask Katie. Scratch that. Don't, don't ask Katie. But it's in those moments, right, where you're, you're lying on your back and you're looking up at life after it just punched you in the mouth for the fifth time that day. It's in that moment that we actually have the opportunity to see the world like the poor and the lame and the cripple and the ostentatious sinner that's been rejected by the community that says they love Jesus. And it's in these moments that punch a hole for us in conventional wisdom that allow us to see what we're really after. And we have to be brave because sometimes it's quite ugly. Because we use charm, wit, intelligence. We use our name. We use the money in our bank account. We use the assets that we have at our disposal. Some of them just have been given to us. And we guard them. We use them to work the system, and when we see they work, we guard them like the one true ring. <laughs> you know, it's Gollum holding on to that thing, guarding it. You cannot take this from me. But we also have to see there's another layer to this because these things are merely assets. They're merely tools to something that's much deeper. They give us access. They give us access to the sense that we can control life. They give us access to at least the illusion of security. They give us access to power. They give us access to religious standing. And they give us access to predictability. 
I can use these tools to make life predictable. And it's these things that if we don't get that second layer, it's those things that if we don't get them out of life or in a particular moment or relationship, we're done. It's game over. And we don't know what to do. And what we need to recognize as we put more of a gospel spin on this is that when we see those things for what they are, we're recognizing them as functional gods in our lives. And so this is why church is dangerous, because you can show up here every Sunday morning, and you can be a part of a community group. You can go down to Embrace Oregon and get a bunch of kids to take care of, and it can be all about you. It can be just an enterprise to keep the ship going. It's a way of actually guarding those things, guarding your functional gods while you sit here and say, I'm worshiping the one true God. You see, the the Pharisees didn't kill Jesus because he ruined a party for them, because he was rude and called out the host. They killed Jesus because he threatened their system. He pointed out their functional gods and said, this whole religious thing you've got going on, it doesn't point to Yahweh. It points to you. And they didn't like that. None of us do, right? And so we'd like to say to the Pharisees, how could they? I would never live like that. But scratch a little bit under the surface. Pull back some layers in your own life and see if there's some coherence to that story that Jesus is telling. So how do we, how do we change this? If this is sort of embedded in our DNA and in our cultural story, how do we begin to change that narrative? Well, I've only got time to kind of do a touch and go. We'll pick it up after Lent. We're going to relaunch into the parables. But let me just say a couple of quick things. Jesus says here, when you throw a party, don't invite those people who can pay you back, but invite those who can't pay you back, and then you will be blessed. I mean, it sounds like such a throwaway line, but there is a whole new world that is opened up in that particular line, and I want us to get it. Hopefully, we can think some more after Lent, but blessed is this very complex term that doesn't quite correspond or at least is much more robust than what blessed means in English, because it doesn't just mean happy. It means that but it's actually finding our full humanity. Blessedness is living into the life that we were created to live, and it's finding the world becoming ordered again in the way that God wants it to be ordered. That's what it means. It means like fundamental joy and flourishing. It means having our humanity reestablished. That's what Jesus is after. That's what he's saying is the alternative to this highly structured religious system and what is being missed. It's fundamental joy. It's flourishing. It's blessedness. And it's not found by saying, here it is, and going after it. It's not found in pursuing the thing in and of itself, but it's found in giving up our demands for life. It's found in giving up our demands on one another. It's found in actually surrendering control 
And that's why it's in those moments that you're on the ground and you don't have any control where you can actually see it, where you can actually live out of that space. It's losing our lives, right, for the, the sake of others. It's not seeking blessing, but it's being blessed. It's receiving blessedness, the flourishing life, the restoration of our humanity, and one day the world as we know it should be. And this happens only as we begin to tie our story to the story, the true story that lies behind the cosmos, the true story of the universe that is of a God whose fundamental joy is in giving. His fundamental orientation is giving life where there is death. It's seeking your joy. It's rescuing lost people. And this is what Jesus does. He doesn't come pursuing His own blessing, but He comes to grant it. He comes not to validate and recognize the religious standing, but to give it. He comes to give standing, and He welcomes back those who have nothing to offer Him, those who can't pay Him back. Who was most overjoyed at the party in Boston? Who told stories? I'm sure the people that came. They were fed. They had a meal. It was amazing. But who got to tell those stories for the rest of their life? It was probably the bride that got to spend this money lavishing it upon these people that she didn't even know, but then got to walk around the table and hear their stories. She got to tell those stories over and over. That's where blessedness broke in in her world. The secret of the world is a God who gets joy by giving. And this is just a hint at application, but we receive joy. We flourish when we stop long enough to see it and to receive it. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that as we consider this text and as we maybe do the hard work of identifying the places in our story that have gone astray and they're no longer serving us, I pray that you would help us have the courage to do that and then have the receptivity to the hope of the gospel, that we can replace what has made us lonely and small and fearsome or fearful, and would you replace that with that which makes us truly refreshed and truly at rest and truly at peace. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.